This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Today is our Doctor in the House segment and we are asking the question, will we see a third COVID-19 wave? So in recent weeks, many of us are concerned that Malaysia may be on the verge of facing another wave of COVID-19 as cases have been on the rise based on recent reports. So what are we doing or perhaps what aren't we doing right to stem the tide? Is the next wave of COVID-19 inevitable? And that's what I'd like to find out from our guests today, uh, Professor Dr. Sanjay Rampal, epidemiologist from University of Malaya, and also uh, joining him, Associate Professor in Psychology, Dr. Eugene T. Uh, we'd like to find out how people's behaviours uh, have changed over the last few months and how that could be affecting the kinds of numbers that we're seeing. How are the both of you today? Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. And Dr. Eugene, how are you doing? I'm doing well. We're slowly moving back into what you guys have been calling the new normal. I personally just like to call it normal these days, but uh, I think we're just going along just fine. Yeah. Yes, and that's something that I'd like to touch on later as well. What is this idea of normal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but to start off with, we keep hearing about uh, waves of COVID-19 and not just here in Malaysia, but also globally. Uh, Professor Sanjay, could you explain what a wave actually means and what does it look like during a pandemic like this? A wave is actually very typical of a sinus wave. It has a peak, it has a trough. I think the issue with COVID-19 is there's been different usage of the terms wave internationally, uh, in different regions, and even in Malaysia. So if if we come back to Malaysia, we had talked about this first wave happening in early uh, January, late January, February. Thinking about that, that, that wave was actually representing imported cases. And then moving to the second wave where we had establishment of local transmission. Now, internationally, when they talk about the first wave, they're actually talking about this first big outbreak of COVID-19 during this pandemic. So the idea of waves in infectious disease is typical, and that's because of the incubation period. And what you have is you have peaks every seven days to two weeks, and the wave either goes up, the incidence either goes up, right? Or it comes down. So it moves up exponentially and it can come down exponentially. And we have seen this in Malaysia, where I think for the past better part of six weeks or eight weeks, we have seen that the incidence of COVID-19 actually come down, but you don't get a steady linear uh, reduction. Every now and then you get a blip and after the blip, it goes down again. Unfortunately, whenever you get this blip in the incidence, there's a lot of fear among the public that, oh, is this the next big one? Mm-hmm. Well, it's part and parcel of the whole pandemic. All right. So when we are scrutinizing numbers on a daily basis, um, I think that's where we start thinking that uh, a little bit of a rise um, could be the next big wave. But what you're saying is that those actually are just blips. Uh, is there any way to um, predict when the blip turns into a peak? So to, to predict when the blip turns into a peak, you would, you would have to go a bit more in, deeper into transmission dynamics. And I think the, the easiest metric out there, which is thrown around a lot, is the RP or R0, the reproductive number. And the idea is for each case that we detect, how many additional cases will get infected. So as long as this number is above one, the, the, the incidence will continue to rise. And as long as the, R, the, the reproductive number is below one, the 
epidemic will eventually die out. Now, there has been some confusion about R0 because to, to me, R0 is the reproductive number in the wild when there's no intervention. Mm-hmm. And for COVID-19, what we have found out is that the R0 is more towards 5.8. That means with no intervention whatsoever, an individual will infect on average five to six people. However, in Malaysia, once our public health force and our healthcare system uh, got into play and started implementing proper preventive measures and containment measures, the RT, the time-varying reproductive number, actually came down to about 1.5, 1.3, 1.5. So one, one way of thinking about this is as long as our healthcare system is in place, it has not been overwhelmed, we have sufficient capacity, the reproductive number hangs around 1 to 1.5. All right. Um, And, you know, the Health Director General uh, has, though, said that we may see a third wave if the R0 exceeds 1.6. So, uh, seems to be a bit of a disconnect there. Can I get a bit more clarity on that? Yeah. So, let's let's think about the epidemic in Malaysia this way, right? What is propagating the epidemic? So, there's two sources that that can propagate the epidemic in Malaysia. Number one is local transmission new cases happening in Malaysia, right? Number two is imported cases. Now, if if you had followed through what happened to the COVID-19 outbreak for the past few weeks, what has happened is we actually brought brought down our local transmission tremendously to very, very low numbers. And what we were getting is we were getting sporadic outbreaks. That means uh, outbreaks happening here and there. And many of the cases were actually epidemiologically linked to a previous case. So there was no new community transmission, so to say. However, what has happened is with the reduction in numbers and the movement towards a new normal uh, normalcy, let's say that, what has happened is we've opened up our borders. So we've come up with some sort of SOPs for, for border relaxation, which, we, which makes sense. However, there was this issue of home quarantine and the issue of compliance. And when one or two don't comply, usually it doesn't make much of a difference. But here we had a lot of non-compliance to home quarantine. And what they did was they started uh, sporadic outbreaks. Some were detected early, but the, the latest one, I think the one in Kubang Pasu, where it was detected two weeks later. A week or two weeks later is when they started detecting the cases. Now what has happened is there's been two weeks for cases to propagate. There's not one wave. There's a couple of waves going on there. And that is when you suddenly see a blip in the incidence and you see numbers rise up. Now, we also get what I feel is I feel that the public get, there's a lot of fear in the public when we get, let's say, 100 cases or 50 cases or 20, not even that high, even 10, 20 cases, there's a lot of fear, Mm -hmm. right? The question we should be asking ourselves is how many cases can we tolerate? We want zero cases, but how many cases can our healthcare system tolerate? And the idea here is going back to flattening the curve. We would want to flatten the curve to make sure that the total number of cases is always below that number. Because as long as our healthcare system has the capacity to handle these new cases, we have very low mortality rates, as can be seen from our mortality rates, and we have very good treatment. We can provide a very high quality treatment to all these COVID-19 patients. To me, if I look at the numbers, I would think that that is about 20,000. That means we, we, we have capacity for 20,000 cases, assuming that 85% are basically very mild, right? So the assumptions going there, 
But when you talk about 20,000 cases, so having uh, cases in the double digits, I think that's still very tolerable. All right. Uh, we've just been joined by Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, my co-host for this segment. Um, thanks for joining us, George. Um, what? Uh, but just very quickly, George, before I get to Dr. Eugene um, to look at uh, the, the psychological perspective. But George, um, how have you been feeling about the recent week's numbers? Well, I, I think, you know, like what Prof Sanjay was saying, it is obviously um, that threshold for people to be um, fearful. On one hand, you get that complacent, you know, when the number comes down and people just don't adhere to SOP and that's sort of like a complacency. On the other hand, you have the situation where there are still people who are too fearful to come out. So um, in my practice, I, I see both sides of the coins. Um, you know, I see the people who will pitch up, uh, will not uh, comply to the actual SOP, will not wear masks. In fact, I've actually seen one person who is supposed to be on home quarantine, which has actually got the tag, actually turn up to the clinic. Okay, you know, it was an emergency situation. The person could not pee. There's no other options. Thankfully, he turned out to be okay. But I think it is a very difficult balance to strike where you want to see different individuals have different threshold in um, having that fear factor to trigger their behavior change. And that brings me to you, Dr. Eugene. So from a psychological and behavioral perspective, um, you know, I guess there is exactly what George described, this um, wide range of uh, attitudes. Um, how have Malaysians' behavior sort of... Um, evolved since the very first case back in January? Yeah, so I think when the first case was announced in late January and the good professor and the two doctors here but, um, just highlighted to us, there's this general sense of concern. But I don't think at that point uh, we picked up on outright panic. That quickly changed, however, into panic closer to when the MCO was first announced on the 18th of March. That creeping anxiety and worry eventually turned into fear and panic. So psychologically, what we have um, what we've felt from this virus is that it is getting closer. And there's an interesting phenomenon from psychological research called approach aversion. So any unknown or potentially creeping danger that slowly dawns upon us adds to that sense of growing and gnawing anxiety and fear and worries. So in many ways, I think our behaviors reflect the sort of growing unease that the virus has crept in from firstly states from across the country to a neighboring state to our own backyard. I mean, I was in domain in a district uh, in which the, there was a case reported in just a grocery store just down the road. So you know it's getting close. It's just at your doorstep. So psychologically, this means that it is just, you know, a stone's throw away, uh, for lack of better words. We were first apathetic. I think many of us we were unrealistically optimistic that, yeah, it's only going to affect the elderly. It's only going to be trans. There's a very low rate of transmission. Then we were alerted. And finally, when it just dawned upon us that there is going to be you know, lockdowns and restrictions, we were finally alarmed. It was clear that the virus had breached our shores. Uh, the behaviors that followed, uh, in particular panic buying for one, you see that everywhere, uh, that was even more evident, especially evident rather when the movement restrictions were, were imminent. All right. We'll go for a quick break, but when we come back, um, can we pick up on uh, that uh, 
point uh, of behaviours and I'd like to ask you, Dr Eugene, how much does fear uh, help people to adhere and comply mm-hmm. to the kinds of SOPs that uh, are required now? Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, Prof Sanjay, of course, um, we need to address, um, if we're looking at the waves that other countries, uh, the spikes that other countries are seeing, what can we learn from that? Um, so today is our Doctor in House segment. Uh, with me, Dr George Lee, consultant urologist, as well as Prof Dr Sanjay Ram epidemiologist from University of Malaya, as well as Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. We're discussing whether we will see a third COVID-19 wave. We'll be right back, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Uh, today is our Doctor in Health segment. We are discussing whether we will see a third COVID-19 wave and what can we learn from observing um, psychological uh, responses, people's behaviours, as well as what other countries are facing right now. Uh, With me, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, uh, also epidemiologist Professor Dr. Sanjay Rampal from University of Malaya and Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. We're trying to, we have a bit of a full house, but we're trying to look at, you know, numbers, the epidemiology. We're also trying to look at behaviours because that is a big part of keeping the numbers down. Um, Dr. Eugene, just before the break, you were talking about the um, varying uh, responses that Malaysians have had to the pandemic. It started with apathy and then it went on to fear uh, and what you call approach aversion because we realised that uh, the virus is coming closer and closer to us and there's sort of um, no way to uh, deny that we are all at risk now. Um, But Dr Eugene, you know, when it comes to uh, inducing feelings of fear or panic, how useful um, are emotions like that um, in I guess, uh, encouraging or compelling people to follow SOPs and to keep themselves safe? Or is there potentially a backlash from creating fear? I think that's a very interesting and rather challenging question as well. We first have to recognize that there's an evolutionary basis for why we are feeling fear. Fear is our psychological response. It's our alarm system that tells us that something is threatening, something is dangerous, and we better be on the lookout and to be vigilant towards those impending threats. Now, I would say that in the midst of all the pandemic, there is a possibility, and I think Dr. George just mentioned this a while ago, that people can become crippled with fear. You get a whole bunch on one side who are, you know, because of the easing of the restrictions, they become complacent. I think it's great that there's some sort of like lifting of the restrictions. People are out and about again. Some sense of normalcy is actually returning. But at the same time, I think in in our efforts to ease anxieties and fears, we also invite complacency. So I think any public health directive or initiative needs to properly balance in between these two. I would say it's also tiring and it's uh, worthwhile mentioning that some of us might be tired about hearing about the coronavirus. And some of us have, um, we, we know from the psychological research that's been some you know, new evidence on corona fatigue. Some has created a new measure for corona fatigue. Mm-hmm. Uh, quarantine fatigue is another one. I think this really reflects the sense that our bodies and our minds are not attuned to be always on alert all the time. We know from stress research that this is problematic to our psychological and our physical health. Uh, As with any major practical implications, um, public health measures that can be taken, it's first important to recognize that it is normal, ironically, right? Or maybe just really just normal. It's not even ironic in my view, but it is accepting to be and to experience this bout of fear and anxiety, but take the necessary steps later on to remain vigilant, but also proactive in managing uh, those emotions. 
Prof Sanjay, um, do you think this fatigue uh, explains why uh, those small blips uh, occur? Or, um, you know, are there other factors at play? Um, is it lack of enforcement of the public health measures? Or is it a quirk of testing? No, so, so with regards to the blips that I was mentioning, that's just basically um, because that, that was the most frequent time cases happen. It's due to the incubation period rather than change in behaviour. If you're looking at the incident, COVID incidents over time and you see rise in cases, it'd be useful to find out why would they rise in cases. So from, from my point of view, many of those cases were actually imported cases, sporadic clusters. That means there were groups of people who were in certain areas, grouped very closely together, who were not monitored. And by chance, someone gets infected and because of the crowded measures, because of poor hygiene, so on and so forth, there was a lot of transmission of the disease. But overall, if, if, you, if you look at Malaysia overall, I still think that the local transmission is low and sporadic. What we do have is we do have these imported cases that comes in and they start up clusters. The issue is uh, hopefully what the government did was they reinstitute institutional quarantine. Hopefully that, that will help. Now, coming back to fear and fatigue, I have a feeling that when this pandemic first started, there was a vacuum of knowledge. So if you're talking about March, and, and time of March it comes very frequently to me because I even went back to the hospital. So at that time, we suddenly saw an increase of cases, and we didn't know much about disease, actually. There was a lot of things we did not know. And this vacuum of knowledge actually leads somewhat to some disinformation. And social media, there are echo chambers within social media, which then works on this fear of people and they amplify that fear. And then actually Eugene stated it very nicely where they, they, it led to a panic. So the, 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 the issue now is we are about six, seven months into the pandemic. We know a lot more than before. So even if you have a very severe case now, your prognosis is actually very, very much better compared with six months ago. Um, Prof Sanjay, I'm glad you mentioned that that sort of like a knowledge, you know, now knowing that technically, statistically, contracting this disease has like a 3% chance of dying, you know, if you broadly put it in a Malaysian setting, as compared to other countries. So would that not just, like Eugene put it, invite uh, complacency? And then, however, why why would people still kind of behave very guardingly and cautiously, even though knowing that uh, this disease actually has such low mortality as uh, in contrast to how we were kind of perceiving the disease uh, early on in the pandemic. I think an important point there is perception. So if you look at times when you read in the news, hundreds of people are getting COVID, you perceive an increased risk. At this point of moment, whenever we look at the papers and we see single digits, and single digits of local transmission, that the, the perceived risk is actually a lot less. So the risk of COVID now, compared to March, is a lot, lot lower. It's just because there's so few people getting it. And, and what happens is we should also, I, I think there is value in taking a step back and looking at what worked in Malaysia and what did not work. What was the most effective or what was the most cost-effective measures put in play? And there is a lot of stress on the individual, right? But, but I, I, I think a lot of it depends on the system. So the preparedness of the healthcare system and the capacity of the healthcare system is very, very important. 
And as long as we do a good job at testing, isolation, at quarantine, I think we will be able to keep this epidemic uh, under wraps. Now, however, coming back to the question of waves, I think there's always a risk of a next big outbreak. And the issue is because humans are always susceptible. Unless there's vaccination, unless we suddenly become, um, we lose susceptibility to the virus, there will always be susceptibility. And all you need is, you need a case. So even if we reach zero local transmission, all you need is a case coming in and you start back transmission locally. And um, Prof Sanjay, you mentioned a vacuum of information. And Dr Eugene, just as Prof Sanjay uh, alluded to, you know, what we know about the virus is still changing or being updated every day. Mm. So uh, when you have that coupled with um, perhaps um, the messaging from authorities that may change from time to time, originally um, the government was very cautious not to make masks mandatory and now mm. masks uh, are mandatory. So when you have, um, I won't say flip-flop, I think it's just a, a, a factor of the situation. But when you have changes in messaging, how does that affect um, public's response? Well, I think initially, there are all the mixed messages that have been announced by different health authorities and people managing the, the entire pandemic situation, that's going to feed into some sense of uncertainty and some sense of confusion as well. So what, masks are not 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 applicable or they're not relevant for people who actually don't who actually don't have the virus. Now we're all expected to actually wear masks. I think that will lead to some confusion. Um, I, all I can say is that at least right now we're getting a better sense and we're filling up that vacuum as uh, Prof Sanjay was saying with additional information. As long as we keep attuned to the news, the updates, the revised SOPs or you know new information and knowledge um, about the virus, I think that's going to go towards some way towards ensuring that we we'll all keep to the standards of behavior that are required of us. Uh, Eugene, um, I'm glad that, um, you know, uh, Shawit mentioned this word confusion. Mm. I think it, it is a little bit of a, you know, paradox. On one hand, we detected such low mortality rate. Mm. On the other hand, we're incredibly vigilant. Yeah. And then so that confusion is, you know, whether we will be elated with this uh, good data or we'll be mm. completely fearful of the second, third wave. I think to, to some extent, um, many of my uh, patients and also myself included, mm. you, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, because this uncertain thing obviously is unprecedented. Yes. But it's just a matter of somebody dare enough to take bold move, but that bold move may be uh, fatal in mm. many ways. So do you, do you think psychologically that hopelessness comes in because of uncertainty? Correct. Uh, it's interesting that you brought up that point about hopelessness because I, I do some research on human emotions and we know that with hope, it's not just where there's a will, that's a way, right? So the idea about hopelessness is that we don't see an, an approach or a pathway. There is no vaccine yet. So I think some people will be naturally, you know, crippled with a sense that there is no light at the end of the tunnel, as you've so creatively actually put it, right? They, they may go ahead and take the necessary steps to limit their chances of being infected by a virus. And I think this is a reflection of the individuals uh, that you described, uh, Dr. George, of just staying at home and choosing not to head out, right? So this idea of hopelessness, what we know from the psychological research is that two things must exist in order for hope to actually arise. Firstly, we want to, we have the motivation, we have the sense of agency that we can take steps towards improving our situation. And secondly, because we 
we, we still are holding out for the vaccine. We don't actually see the route towards escaping from this grapple, this grip of hopelessness that we're currently going through right now. So two things, the will and the way must actually exist for that sense of hopelessness to be lifted. Right now, I think uh, with individuals who lock themselves up at home, certainly some members of my family as well, they only have one but not the other. You know, I've spoken to Prof Sanjay on uh, similar issues uh, recently as well. And I'm always poking uh, at the question. I'm always asking Prof Sanjay to give me a definitive answer. You know, what is that light at the end of the tunnel, right? And I know, Prof Sanjay, there's no way. There's no way of telling. Um, But if we look at what's happening in other countries, and uh, countries as we've already uh, mentioned earlier, uh, Australia, Hong Kong, uh, which seemed to be doing well and then are seeing a, a huge spike now and reverting to lockdown. Um, what's happening there? And is there anything from those countries that we can learn from? So what I think is we should look at what preventive measures are in our arsenal to combat COVID-19, right? So if you think about it, we have border control. We have restriction of movement. We have hand hygiene, right? We have physical distancing and we have face mask use. So to me, face mask use is actually at the end of the spectrum. Yeah, and, and there's a reason for that. Now, as the pandemic progresses, and as we don't find a vaccine, assuming we don't find a vaccine, it's only a matter of time before the incidence of COVID rises. And if we don't do anything, it will continue to rise. Now, the approach that the, the government is taking is they're judging it based on the severity of, of the rise. So if there's an exponential rise, you may even see movement restriction coming back in. But one key word now, I think, is border control. Because as soon as we get local transmission uh, under control, right, border control becomes very, very important. Border control, border restriction. Prof. Sanjay, I mean, I want to ask you this kind of like crystal ball in the epidemiology viewpoint, right? What is the chance of us saying the same thing about border control, hand washing, face mask, you know, um, alcohol swab, five years, three years from today? You know, it's like a, you know, because if we're banking so much hope on the vaccine, and yeah. if the vaccine itself either doesn't uh, emerge or the vaccine itself is not as effective, if we are do, do you think there's any chance that we're still doing this? three years from today? So there's two things that, that, that I'll, I'll reply that, that, that point with. Number one is rationalization of our fear and accepting that there will always be a baseline risk of COVID-19. I think we have not done that as humans. We have not acknowledged that there will always be a baseline risk of COVID, just the way that there will be a baseline risk of Ebola or dengue. Right, We have accepted the baseline risk to these other infectious diseases, but COVID-19 was so new and there was a lot of coverage on it that I think that there was a disconnect and many have not accepted that there will always be a baseline risk of COVID-19. Coming to vaccine, uh, when, when this virus first cropped up, it, it, was, it was native. That means there was no immunity to it. But as time passes, as more people get infected, as mutations come in, I think there will be cross-reactivity between the virus and between vaccines. Whether we will ever get one effective vaccine is is questionable, but you you can look at cross-reactivity. 
I'm going to ask Eugene the same question. What happened if three years from today we have this similar conversation and uh, reminiscing what life was like before 90, uh, you know, before 2020? What sort of psychological impact will it have on general population if, let's say, say, this prolonged for uh, several years? And I want to add to that as well, Dr. Eugene. Um, what will it take for um for us all to collectively come to terms with that idea of living under that risk, as Prof Sanjay said? Mm, I think that's a very important question and certainly a challenging one. So I can sort of, we're, we're tougher as a species than we give ourselves credit for. I mean, we've gone through, uh, maybe not in our lifetimes, but certainly in our ancestors' lifetimes, other pandemics as well. Now, we will hold out hope for a vaccine, but being the resilient and sort of stubborn species that we are, I think we'll eventually come to terms with this accepting what normalcy is like. And uh, you mentioned quite a few in terms of um, some of the, um, I, I picked up on the conversation as well, that we're just going to come to a point where it is normal to be out there, to be wearing face masks, to acknowledge that the risk of infection is always going to be there. I think that's this growing sense of acceptance. I don't think uh, that should be accompanied with, you know, a sense of like hopelessness or complacency. Eventually, we will bounce back you'll start to accept that, okay, it's going to be out there, but we can, I think after a while, social norms are going to shape people's behaviors to a point where it's going to be unusual to see someone without a mask. We will have this conversation again, and in a similar vein, a similar fashion as well, just reflecting on the good times before the virus. In, in our department, <laughs> we're making a joke here that the time points in our lives right now can be divided into BB and AB, before virus and after virus. <laughs> but I, I think there's this general sense that we will move to a point where we will accept, we will find it in ourselves to normalize our behaviors, frequent hand washing, proper sense of hygiene, no gathering, make sure you're always wearing a face mask when you're out there. And I think, the, uh, shall we, your second question was, was, was it in relation to the behaviors? Um. Well, I guess you've sort of addressed it as uh, in in uh, explaining that these kinds of responses will become normalized because mm -hmm. what I asked was um, to add on to Prof Sanjay's point about mm -hmm. living under uh, this um, idea of risk, mm -hmm. accepting this mm -hmm. risk as being normal. Yes, I think we'll also come to terms with accepting that as well. If I could just make a, a, a short sort of like comment here on the issue of culture, I think we're in a slightly better position in order to accept. And what we know from cross-cultural psychology is that many Asian countries tend to be interdependent, they tend to be collectivist, they tend to be what we call harmony-seeking, face-saving type cultures. And I suspect that some of the research here might also be used to actually predict why we see a lot more resistance in the West. We see like protests. I, I, as far as I can tell, gentlemen, I've not seen any protests on the street here saying that, no, you're violating, trampling up human rights that you, know, you shouldn't force us to actually wear a mask. I think what we see as a cultural difference here is that in the West, uh, we have individuals who are independent, who are more what we call autonomy seeking from the psychological sciences. So the idea that they are forced upon to wear the mask, that's a violation uh, in their view of their human rights. Here, we don't see so much. I think because of interdependence or harmony seeking or collectivist nature, that when we put on the mask, we're not just doing it for ourselves, we're doing it for the people around us here as well. It was kind of uh, uplifting as I was driving along the road the other day and the messages just said, I, I know it's on one of the billboards on the sprint, I think, it said just a bit more Malaysians, we can beat this virus. And it's a sense of growing sense that we're in this together. And we're not saying that being forced upon us right, to wear a mask, that's a violation or it's trampling over or autonomy or human rights. So I think we have the factors, the cultural factors to give us those right behavioral nudges, right? To tell us that, you know what? 
yes, we are combating this virus together. No one is actually trampling on your on your right to autonomy or your rights. All right. Um, you know, you're both actually pretty optimistic, but I'm cynical by nature. Um, I am wondering if we can use dengue um, as an example of how people cannot change their behaviours, even though all the information is there uh, and the measures, the prevention measures are actually very simple and cost effective. But let's keep that for when we come back from this next break. I'm speaking to Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist uh, who's here for the Doctor in the House segment and uh, also Prof. Dr. Sanjay Rampal, epidemiologist from University of Malaya, as well as Dr. Eugene T. Associate Professor in Psychology, and we're discussing whether the the next COVID wave, uh, the next COVID nineteen wave, is impending here in Malaysia. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. BFM eighty nine point nine. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoyi. It's Friday. It's our Doctor in the House show. And uh, joining me, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, Professor Dr. Sanjay Rampal, epidemiologist from University of Malaya, and Dr. Eugene T., Associate Professor in Psychology. Uh, we are discussing the next COVID-19 wave. Is that upon us already? Um, is that coming? How well prepared are we for this? And um, how are we responding, you know, our collective psych? key. Um, how well are we responding to the need to change our behaviours and to accept um, the new normal or rather what Dr. Eugene wants to call just the normal now. Um, and we'll get to that idea of normalcy um, in a bit. Um, but Prof Sanjay, before this you said we need to come to terms with the fact that there is a baseline risk um, f- uh, for living with uh, COVID-19 in our community uh, and that we will normalize um, the changes and the measures, the control measures that need to be um, continued uh, in order to keep this at bay. But Prof Sanjay, with something like dengue, it's been decades uh, of trying to get people to change behaviours and the measures are actually very, very simple and yet dengue cases persist. Um, there's no significant reduction in dengue uh, even though, and, and right now, people talk more about COVID than they do about dengue. So if we use that as a comparison, um, I'm cynical. I think that um, we will eventually lapse to complacency and apathy again, even with COVID. What do you think? So coming back to the dengue example, I think it's very important to look at how diseases spread. So with dengue, we have a vector, we have a mosquito who's ever present, right? We have an environment which is suitable. We have a climate which is suitable for the mosquito to breed. And as long as you have a climate which is uh, appropriate, a vector which is appropriate, dengue will always be a problem. COVID is slightly different. So COVID is person-to-person transmission. So on on one end, I'm a bit more optimistic because there's less reliance on the environment, which a lot of times you cannot change, right? So a lot of times with person-to-person or human-to-human transmission, the levers, right, that we can pull on to change the transmission dynamics of the disease is all within reach. And I, I, I go back to to what I said before, as long as the healthcare system is prepared, as long as we have a good public health prevention for contact tracing, for testing, so on and so forth, we should be prepared for it. Prof Sanjay, along the similar line of questioning, I draw the similarity with the Spanish flu. 
I know that was 100 years ago, and then, uh, but that is human-to-human transmission. What lesson do you think we can learn from this? Obviously, the healthcare is very, very different between uh, that time and now. But the number of uh, mortality and the number of people contracted is similarly colossal. So what, what sort of lessons do you think we can learn and predict the cause or natural history of uh, COVID-19 based on uh, the history? So the first thing um, would be resiliency of humans. Going back to what Eugene said and something I've been thinking about, that we, humans have endured many, many pandemics. And if there's one thing we can learn from the Spanish flu is that this virus that we're facing is not the end. If, if we were to let it run its course, it would kill anywhere between 1% to 10% of the population, but the remaining people will still be alive. That's the first. So first thing is really resiliency, lose the fear, right? The, with, with regards to other things that we can learn, sometimes I feel that documentation is an issue. So sure, I, I do read about um, examples that can be had on that time. But I think one few key issues, number one is, public health system in place, healthcare system in place. So I always refer to our healthcare system and capacity. As long as we have capacity to treat this disease, right, mortality rates, will, will, we will keep mortality rates low. Mm. Eugene, what, what do you think it will be the impact and, you know, draw a lot of um, uh, similarity between this? Should we be fearful or should we be grateful that, you know, we're living in 21st century? You know, it's a similar disease and then it's just we are in a, you know, uh, uh, best technological healthcare uh, we ever had as here in mankind. I, I think the answers that uh, both of you provided here, the two real doctors in the house, I think that really shed some light, a really important light on how we can actually manage this virus. I'm going to go back to what you mentioned earlier, George, on the fact that there's a group of us who are struggling with anxieties and fears. They don't want to leave the home. And at the same time, I think um, Sherry has, has picked up that we tend to be optimistic. I, I think if we are optimistic, we are hopeful. And I very much like what Sanjay mentioned about, you know, the recognition of and, and tip of the hat to the health system that we have here uh, in this country. We are resilient. We will get through this. However, I think we need to guard against that sense of complacency. I'm just going to just make brief mention of this uh, phenomenon that we do observe in the psychological sciences, just to balance the uh, discussion here a little bit and to maybe echo Sharik's concerns about optimism. There's something called the optimism bias in the psychological sciences. And I think without getting into technicalities, this is the, it won't happen to me effect, all right? So there's this chance that uh, the, the, I think the, the issue with uh, the gradual say, lowering of the movement restrictions, the fact that we see single digit increases, that's very, very minuscule. But at the same time, we want to ensure that people are still aware that the virus is out there. It might be a default for our lives in the next coming years. Even with the introduction of a vaccine, I think it will be a while before we see its widespread availability. Correct me if I'm wrong on this medical sort of like forecast, if you will. So the optimism bias, just coming back to that, is the recognition that it will not happen to me. And we have, uh, we replace a rather unjustified or unwarranted positive expectation for favorable outcomes in the future that we need to guard against. So long story short, uh, too long, didn't read, I would say somewhere in the middle, there is good reason to be optimistic. There is good reason to be hopeful I'd say that we also will need to guard against being crippled by fear because this is probably as normal as we're going to get for a while. Okay, so Prof Sanjay, what 
uh, do you think are the possible scenarios that we could see in the coming weeks or months? And I'm coming back again, drawing the conversation back to, you know, are we seeing, are we going to be seeing the next wave? <laughs> there will always be a risk, but at this point of time, the risk is low. That's a very well rehearsed statement of mine <laughs> for the past few weeks. <laughs> no, we, we have to acknowledge there is, there's always a risk, right? As long as we are, as humans, we are susceptible to the virus, there's always a risk that it will, that a big outbreak will happen. However, my point, uh, I will keep to my point where as long as the total number of cases, so I was quoting 20,000, mm-hmm. but you, you can have it to as long as the total number of active COVID-19 cases below 10,000, our system will be able to handle it. Well, you know, Sanjay, I, I know you point, uh, you put out a really good argument that is a low risk and it's incredibly political, politicians, at, uh, you know, way of sitting on the fence and say, yep, there's a risk, it's well rehearsed. But that is providing that the border is closed because no matter how well we contain ourselves, you know, there's always that external factor that will come in. So when are we going to open the border? I want to go traveling. Totally agree with you, George. So how we, because, you know, we are so interlinked and then, you know, like uh, Eugene said, the pre-virus era, we have all that freedom and then all of us are cooped up in Chuti Chuti, Malaysia. We can go up and down from Perlis down to Johor so many times in one year, right? <laughs> just, just to reply to you, George, what I think is, right, if we get local transmission down to zero, we'll be able to lose the mask, lose the physical distancing, lose everything. However, border control and border restriction will still be a problematic area. And so, you know, Eugene, what can we do to make the new normal simply the normal, as you said? And if if people have to live under continued policing and uh, these uh, dramatic changes to our routines, like, um, you know, not being able to see family members from overseas, things like that, right? How long can we live under those kinds of restrictions and... Yeah, the normal. How do we do that? Well, for one, I think I echo the uh, sentiments of um, everyone here in this chat. And stop calling it new normal. Maybe it's just me, but I'm ironically getting a little bit tired of the term. Uh, placing the word new in front of normal also creates this idea or the psychological impression that things must change. And for the most part, I think if you see some sense of the stubbornness or resistance or the lackadaisical approaches that some people are taking, we are fairly resistant to change. And I think from a health psychology perspective, uh, there are several ways in which we can sustain that behavioral change and increase acceptance of the SOPs. I don't think we need to get, get into the technical details of it, but uh, it revolves around having the idea of the um, of health beliefs. So one of the well-tested models that I'm a little bit familiar with is the health beliefs model. Just to echo and to build upon what Prof. Sanjay has said, yeah, initially during the lockdown, there was suggestions that no, it's not social distancing. You can still stay connected with one another. So what we are practicing is physical distancing. There are still ways in which we can check in with individuals and still stay safe uh, in doing so. It's going to take a bit of getting used to, though. I don't think it's something that will come naturally to us. We are very social. I think uh, I, I mentioned on... I think a different show, there was something called skin hunger is a touch deprivation. It's unusual that we are not getting our handshakes in, we're not getting the hugs in. Um, I, I, I think there are ways in which we can compensate for that. It's not going to be fully natural, but there are other ways to actually compensate for that uh, as well. 
All right. I'm sorry. We're running out of time for the, this discussion. Um, but can I get a final message uh, from each of you, Prof Sanjay? To me, I think COVID-19 is very important. But we should acknowledge in the past one hour that we have been speaking about COVID-19, mm. approximately four Malaysians have died of cardiovascular disease. Oh. So there are <laughs> other diseases that are as important or claim more lives than COVID-19. Mm. Lose the fear. Dr. Eugene. Very empowering. Um, can I steal that, Prof. Sanjay? <laughs> I'm just going to say the new normal is the normal now. And I, I think we, we're in this together and we will emerge from this all together. George. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, I acknowledge that we're doing incredibly well, providing we shut the border. So, Sanjay, you know, I, I accept that, you know, just have to stay. <laughs> George in will Malaysia. give up his holidays. I absolutely nowhere else about Malaysia. Um, so Eugene, I also accept this whole thing that there's no such thing as new normal. This is the normal. And then, but I picked up something that was really nice. I'm really skin hunger. And then because you know, the day that I get to actually hug Shawi again in person in the studio yeah. is the day that you know this whole thing is over. Yes. Because in the meantime, we just have to just stay on a Zoom and yes. continue to be skin hunger. Yes, George and I are not allowed to see each other because we are on different rotations. But thank you so much to all of you. I've been speaking to Professor Dr. Sanjay Rampal, epidemiologist from University of Malaya, and Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. And of course, consultant urologist Dr. George Lee. You've been listening to Health and Living on The Bigger Picture BFM. 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.